Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher coach Bobby Julik and Outskirts visionary Gus Morton invite you to put your socks on. Winning and losing, training and racing, pro, not pro. All of it comes down to understanding what works and what doesn't. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Bobby Julik, and as always, I'm here with Gus Morton. Hey, Gus. How are we doing today, mate? Bobby, how's it going? Uh, I'm very well. How about you? Yeah, all good. I'm just happy that the race has finally started. It's been quite a big build-up, exciting stuff. So ready to get rolling. Yeah, man, the Tour de France. It's the, uh, it's the big boy. It's the one that everybody who is uh, riding their bike to work, it's the one they all watch. So with that in mind... Let's start the show, and we have a good show. Today's theme is uh, team selection, and today's race was stage one around Brussels in Belgium. But before we get to our theme and, uh, and all of that, let's talk about the stage. Brussels to Brussels, 194.5K, starting it off as a long one. Uh, it was a loop around the south of Belgium through Chalois and back. There was a couple of, uh, we had the, the Mer de Grammont and the Bosberg, um, which was, you know, kind of like a bit of the classics, albeit they came really far from the end. Um, it was kind of funny to see, uh, <clears throat> it was kind of funny to see uh, Greg Van Averme at 150k to go, um, going completely ham on the Bosberg there. Um, then yeah, so that was sort of that was about it for the stage. Um, the tour last started in Brussels. Well, first started in Brussels back in 1958. Um, it's visited Belgium heaps of times. Uh, I believe Pataki won here most recently. Um, and Bobby, you have a bit of a connection with Belgium, is that correct? And the tour? Yeah, I think it was 2004. We had the prologue there, and. Um... I think I was top 10 in the prologue. I think that was when we first saw Fabian Conchalera finally, you know, break through at the biggest, in the biggest stage and, and win the prologue that year. But, um, you know, going back a little bit today, how cool was that watching Greg Van Avermet, you know, the star, the Olympic champion, star of the classics, go and chase the KOM points? You know, a lot of the times we think that these guys, oh, it's too big for them. You know, they're thinking about the end of the stage or later in the race, especially maybe stage three for Greg. I just thought that was pretty neat. You know, the guy's a bike racer and seeing him go to the front and just boss it over the, the mirror. And yeah, uh, those other man. three guys in the breakaway with him were just kind of probably, you know, dead man walking like, oh boy, how are we going to hang on? But then, then you had... Uh, I hope I pronounced this guy's name right. Mirisa, uh from Wanty Goubert actually beat him up the Bosberg. And then yeah. just showing Greg's experience, as soon as those two climbs were over, just put on the parking brake, went back to the Peloton and, and saved it for the end. So yeah, gave his fans there in Belgium quite a lot to look at and quite a lot to cheer for. Those fans in Belgium, you saw the TV 
the TV images, they were, they were five, 10 deep all around the course. That must have been quite a day. Man, the Belgians love it, don't they? And, and you know, like the moment I flicked on the TV um, today and saw GVA in the break and just hitting it early, like, you know, you're at the Tour de France and I love that. Like, I love seeing the aggression, you know, and the tactics as well. Like things just, you know, like there's, there's so many different elements to this race that become important for teams. Like, you, you, you know, you endlessly hear um, people talk about like, oh, they're getting exposure for their team and, and all of that. But that, then that's the case. But when their level is so high at the Tour de France, you know, when, when you think that a guy of, of Greg Van Avermaet's stature is, in, is going for the, the first break on the first stage of a three-week race, you know you've got to get creative with the way in which you get exposure for your team. And so um, it was really cool to see. It was really cool to see that aggression early on. And then, of course, um, towards the end there, we saw that long move by uh, Rosson. <coughs> Sorry, was that his name? Rosetto, Rosetto. Rosetto don't forget that. Don't forget that sprint. You know, I think Sagan yeah. sent a shot across the bow there. You know, his team came up through that cobbled section and just disintegrated the the advantage that the breakaway had at that time. So right then and there, you know that that Mr. Sagan is going for a record-breaking what seventh green jersey, and for his team to commit to that sort of chase and for him to come through with the goods. Um, that, that was not the easiest. Okay. It was a G rated sector for the, the real experienced pop Bay guys, but mm. you saw it broke up into three groups and his team was up there doing the damage. Definitely. There was some, a little bit of panic, if not a lot of panic, a couple of sprinters got piped off, uh, mechanicals, whatnot, a couple of GC guys, but we, we knew it would come back after that. But, um, yeah, it was super seeing how fast they went over that sector and how fast that, that advantage that the breakaway had caught him right before that Sagan got the the maximum points. And then after that, yeah, it was a little bit of a, a lull in the, in the intensity. And that's when Rosetto took off. And again, talking about the Tour de France, you know, those TV attacks are part of the Tour de France, right? That kid was on, on live TV for over an hour representing his French sponsor, which is, you know, up in, <laughs> up in that area. And it was just kind of keeping the powder dry, getting ready for that run-in. And that run-in turned out to be quite interesting, uh, especially with, with Jakob Fuglesong. He's my, my pick for the overall, and him crashing would not have, was not the best situation for him. I hope he's okay. We do know that those, those facial lacerations caused by maybe the impact of the glass does make it look worse than it is as far as the blood streaming down. But for sure, any crash, especially on the first day of the tour, takes its toll. Yeah, and you always see that happen to to one to one guy. Um, I want to like one of the GC guys always seems to have on the first day a bit of bad luck, and and it's always a shame to see. But at the other side of that, he looked calm and and, and came back into the race pretty well. So hopefully he's all right. I do want to say one thing as you said about um, the intent that that Bora showed in in running into that into that sprint. Um, it's easy to kind of be like, oh yeah, it's early first stage, you know, keep the powder dry a little bit, you know, you get hot, you go, you go half gas, um, and, and maybe save it a bit for the finish. But I mean, Sagan's like the absolute, um, beast when it comes to the green Jersey and he owns that. And he demonstrated today that like, you know, shots fired, like he put runs on the board straight away. And, and it made me think of like going back to, uh, I mean, going back to the Giro and Richard Carapaz winning that. The, like the fifth stage, you know, like it was an uphill sprint and he just, he, sh he showed his form. And then going back to when Kid Evans won the tour in, uh, 
in 2011. Was it 2011? 2011, yep. when he won an early stage as well in a similar way, like a stage that wasn't suited. I like that. Like, you know, all this talk about the Tour de France and like saving your energy and keeping your powder dry, you do, but you've got to also show intention and you've got to put, you know, you've got to put your, your best foot forward and, and be on the front foot the whole time. And so, yeah, I don't know, like hopefully we'll keep seeing that, that green jersey race beyond the whole time and, and make that exciting. Let's talk about the finish. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah, the finish. The finish, um, you know, with with that crash being caused by uh, Gronewagen, yeah. or you know, he was one of the first guys to go down. It was it was that it wasn't a pinch point. It was a long straight road, and that just shows the nervousness of these guys. You know, no one wants to give an inch, and yeah. you know, you you gotta respect the the other riders around you because everyone around you is also one of the eight best of their team, one of the top of their country. I mean, the best of the best. And no one's going to give an inch, especially in that scenario. But that was kind of a bummer to, to see those guys taken out of the race like that. Um, it didn't affect the guys that were in the top positions, but I think that definitely changed the dynamic of the race. And there we were thinking, you know, well, this is Sagan or Caleb Ewan for sure. And then Tunisian comes out of nowhere. I mean, have you ever heard of Michael Tunisian before? I mean, yeah, but only as a lead out man and like and 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 with with 1.4k to go, Gronewagen on the ground, you're just like, oh man, they rode like of all the teams, there was a stat they had ridden 38% of the time on the front. So they'd been doing it predominantly the most work. And you're just like, man, what a shame. And uh and instantly uh Tunisian crosses the line by like half a tire with um but what i found impressive about that i mean aside from the fact that like that was a really dogged sprint and he overcame sagan on the line too like at the death but it was that he was able to like switch his mindset and be straight away from being like i'm leading this guy out with less than with 60k with 60 seconds to go before the finish you know uh and to be just like okay now i'm gonna win it and win it um impressive impressive i tell you this guy's been on a burner i asked you if you knew him because I didn't really know him, but he started popping up on the radar about a month ago, a month and a half ago. He he was he's on a full-on burner. He won the four days of Dunkirk. He was part of the Hammer series when when they won the Hammer series up in Stavanger, up in um, in Norway, and they also he also won the ZLM tour. So wow, like dude, some big races there, like back to back to back, and then winning the first stage of the tour taking the yellow jersey, being the first Dutch guy to have the yellow jersey since Broekink, I believe. It's been a while. Yeah. Man, yeah, it's, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a party in Holland tonight. And wow, what a way, what what a plan B. Like not many teams could switch like that. And like you said, he just had to make that decision on the fly. And to come around Sagan, who had a very good position that whole entire sprint that that those were some big waddies he had to produce to make that happen man massively impressive and uh and that and i like yumba visma they're building a super team they're like i reckon you know just over the last couple of years you've seen them build up and no one really talks about them in a big way but i mean man they've got of the best bike riders in the world they've got a lot of them across the board as well um so it's cool to see i like it hey bobby before we push on to the stage Let's just hear from our sponsors. All right. It's time for today's daily dose of Road ID Tour Trivia. To play, 
head on over to roadid.com slash TDF. Today's question. Introduced 100 years ago, the fabled yellow jersey was first worn by whom on July 18, 1919? Go to roadid.com slash TDF to answer this question and score a chance to win today's daily prize. A black GoPro Hero 7. Again, that's roadid.com slash TDF. Known knowns, known unknowns, unknown unknowns. It's time for Superfan. Guys, July is here. Although I had some flashbacks to the spring with Van Avermaet hammering up those little climbs. I got chills, guys. Oof. Um, selection seems to be the theme for today. Uh, let's talk about non-selection. What does it feel like to be a hyper-competitive athlete who's made it into the tour selection before, and uh, this year you get flicked a little bit. How do you recover mentally and move on with uh, the rest of your season or, in Cav's case, the rest of his career? What's, uh, what's going to happen? That's a really good question. Um, I, haven't, I was never one of those guys that was on the bubble and then got the call and said, you weren't going. I actually gave up my spot in 2007 and 2008 because I just knew I wasn't ready. I couldn't imagine what Mark Cavendish was going through because obviously he's chasing the all-time stage record. You know when he's on, he gets hot and he could pop off five or six stages without even knowing it. So I can only imagine the politics, the discussions, the hard decisions that that team had to make. But every single team had a hard decision to make or multiple hard decisions to make. I think team selection is very, very difficult. I have never really been on the inside of those mega decisions, but I think the riders, they know through the training, through the sensations that they have, they know if they're ready or not, and they accept those those decisions. I know Mark's having a little bit of a hard time with, with that one, but very infrequently is it a total surprise yeah i think like i mean to use mark uh, like as an example here like he would have he knew he was on the line right like it it was his reputation that would have kept him in because certainly his performance doesn't warrant a start but then the other side of that coin too is that team hasn't necessarily had a great couple of years so what warrants a performance right um But what's interesting, I think, that we need to touch on about non-selection is like for guys that non-selection is made um, eight days ago and they're in the form of their life, right? But their intention to make the Tour de France team was started, you know, like eight months ago when they're planning out their season and obviously years before that. But like, you know, like they sit down and have a meeting and they're like, I want to do the tour or the team might be like, we want you to do the tour. And that's, you know, put in your mind in November. Um, and, and kind of like whether it's hanging over your head or whether it's an incentive for you to go towards, it's there. Um, and so to have that kind of knowing that that hangs in the balance and then have that disappear on you eight days or potentially, you know, within a week from the race, um, it, it doesn't matter who you are. Like that's brutal. Um, and, and that's the sport. That's all sport, you know, like a lot of guys are benched during grand finals um in in team sports and and whatever and that's just the way the way it goes and that's where the team has to kind of 
when you know when you sign up to be a member of a team i guess that has to kind of rise to the top of your thoughts uh in that moment and be like wow this is i'm you know i'm taking one for the team um i'm doing what's best for for everybody it's definitely a pivot point moment you can take it as motivation or you can take it as okay that's it i'm going on vacation i'm at the end of my contract i'm going to switch teams next year you know poor me but these guys go through so many difficult periods during the year. This just needs to be one that you need to digest and take the positive out of it, use it as motivation, come back stronger, you know, prove to yourself and to your team that that maybe they made the wrong decision, but you know, that that gets a little bit towards the negative side. I think you just want to just turn the page and say, "Listen, I'll have a little bit of time off now." I'll take a little vacation to the beach with my family, which was unplanned. And then I'm going to come back fresher, stronger, more motivated. It's, it's, it's a very difficult couple days, I guess, after that. But then you just have to move on. Just like when you, you know, peak for a race and you crash out, you have to just reset the dials and move on. You can't just sit there and, and smolder over a negative situation that didn't fall your way. Bobby, is there a beach that all these guys that don't make the tour go to together? Because I can see a bunch of really, really skinny guys laying there on a beautiful beach in south of France, just trying to avoid any tour coverage and just, you know, laid out. What do you think? Uh, that would be pretty embarrassing if there was one beach. I don't know if you'd want to be looking at skinny little guys with with cycling tans uh, running around the beach acting crazy. So well, some of us might like that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they, okay. Um, yeah, the south of France is easy. Uh, I know that the the Dutch coast is is a big one because it's right there. Um, I don't think anyone's jumping on a plane and going to Bora Bora or you know, down to Mexico or anything like that, unless it was a totally planned vacation. Because yeah, the season after the Tour de France, as we'll see in three weeks, there's a lot more of the season to go. So you can't totally, you can't totally detach. I call it the micro transition or the micro break, not the full on, you know, off season reset. You gotta, if you have the form of your life, quote unquote, form of your life, and you're not selected, you know what, take a little bit of break, scrub that kind of top end off a little bit, and then start building from a higher level for, for the Tour of Spain and the races after the Tour de France. Um, so right after the Tour de France, it's, it's game on again. It's like just no one even remembers what you did in the Tour. It's on to San Sebastian and the preparation for the Tour of Spain, et cetera, et cetera. So I got, a, I got a couple of questions for you actually, Bobby, but like I want you to just kind of wrap up what you just said then, but I think the one thing that's really interesting and a lot of people don't realize, right, is that like you obviously you spend all this time building up your form and then everyone's like, oh, now, you know, and then you don't make the team. And a lot of fans, I think, are like, oh, well, that form's gone. Can you give me like, you know, like, like a, a perspective like as, a, as a coach, as an as a expert in this field, like a really quick rundown of what does it look like for that guy? Like he's hit, he's hit peak form. He doesn't get to do this race. Now he rebuilds for the Vuelta or for San Sebastian or what, what does he do now in this, three, in this next three-week period in order to kind of like detune and then retune? Well, I hate to say it, but if that person hit peak form, you'd think he would have been selected for the tour. So it's kind of like through the eyes of the beholder, like what his real peak form is. And let, let me tell you, all these teams now have, 
you know, in-house coaches that are looking at files and out there on the road with these guys, training camps, altitude camps, team time trial camps. And they're, they, they may see something that the rider who has his ego invested doesn't see or that it doesn't fit into the overall scheme of what that team is trying to accomplish in the race. But yeah, these guys, you need to take that break. You need to detach. You need to keep the, the silver lining and say, listen, now I'm going to be even better after the tour. I'm going to come back. I'm going to be fresher and more motivated than ever before. It's, it's, it's definitely a hard decision to, you know, hard mindset to switch over to, but you, you have to do it because the season's really only half over after the Tour de France when you think about it. There's a lot more to go. So, Bobby, you, you just sort of touched on it uh, just before talking about the, the flip side of that, which we haven't really heard on that, and that's the team perspective. Um, and I, I know that you've been involved in, in, in that over the years, you know, from at the highest level. And I've even heard rumors that you were the guy who kind of brought in a bunch of software that, that, uh, that is able to kind of analyze over the year an athlete's performance. Tell me what it looks like from a management side. Well, it's not all data. It's not all data. You can say, oh yeah, let's look at his numbers, blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's not just the numbers. It's how he fits into the team. It's how he fits into the scheme of the overall tactic that, that the team is going there to hopefully achieve. Are yeah. they bringing a sprinter? Are they, bringing, are they going for the GC? Are they just chasing stages? Are they focusing on the first week? And then after that, just kind of hoping for the best. That's where this algorithm that must go on for days comes into effect. And these guys have a lot of experience, the directors, the senior management, the coaches, and they're just trying to make that soup that, that doesn't taste too salty or too, too sour. And there's so many things that you have to think about. And, you know, we see teams that, that made some decisions this year, maybe left a sprinter off the team because they're focusing more on the GC, vice versa. It's, it's a multitude of things that, that make that composite of the team. And it's not an easy decision. Um, there's what, 20 to 25 or 28 guys on each team. They only select eight, which is a big, big difference than selecting nine. And, you know, you always have to have those one or two guys in case something goes wrong the day or two before the Tour de France, which we know in, in the past has happened, those last second call-ups. So you're, you're just trying to keep eight to 12 guys happy and confident and ready for the race. And then you kind of, there's a few guys that we'll call the bubble boys, and they probably know that they're the bubble boy um sometimes ignorance is bliss where you think you're on the team and then after you get selected you find out that you're the last guy selected like myself in 1998 i did not know that until probably three days into the race one of the riders told me that i was the last one selected and i went on to have a great tour because maybe i wasn't really worried about it so the selection process is very very difficult the teams are now eight riders you know they've been forever nine and we've seen them reduced to eight. How does that change things? You know, like, like, is it as drastic as I think it is, or is it? Yeah, I think with just one rider less that you actually have to be even more zoned in, uber specific with what your goal is, and then weight the selection of the riders towards that goal. So if it was just going for sprint stages, then, you know, maybe a couple climbers get left out. 
and yeah. you know a couple spinners get left off of of the the GC teams. So that is a big decision going from nine to eight. I tell you, especially if you're leading the tour and you're having to set pace through those transition stages, having one extra warm body on the front does make a difference. So I think it's those middle guys, not the best sprinters, not the best climbers, but those real strong guys, those are the guys that seem to be on the bubble or on the wrong end of that bubble. So I got a a little addition question for, for you, Bobby. What is the team time trial coming up tomorrow? What does that add into the mix as far as for these GC teams? You know, this is going to be a, an early opportunity for them to maybe put some time into um, some of their rivals if they have a strong performance and bring a strong team time trial team. Uh, but then they might suffer later in the, in the mountains. So what do you think? Well, that definitely factors into the decision with those two or three guys on the bubble is who can give us one extra long pull or two extra long pulls in the team time trial. And it may come down to that. Like guys perfectly matched in exactly the same sort of condition, mental state, everything, but they have the ability to do one or two more pulls that can contribute to the team's overall effort and, and moving their GC rider up. I'm sure that factored into a lot of those guys, that eighth and ninth guy, who can do that and help us in that in that team time trial. So for sure, they were thinking about that. And it being the second stage, you know, it's not like the seventh or eighth stage, like sometimes it is. It's the second stage. So it's like, let's get the most out of this guy and let's win the team time trial. Let's move our GC guy up into good position um, compared to one guy that maybe just doesn't have that sort of ability in the team time trial and is that like a for example a tony martin right like once upon a time would have won every time trial going like just put him on the front of the team's time trial do the whole thing win it individual got it no worries but nowadays he's like it's been a while been been a while between drinks for him but he's here at the tour for visma is he just a meat sack for the ttt and they're just like he's he's that good at that job that they're like the rest of the time, who cares what he does? But just for this one stage, are they just like, yeah, we're going to give him one eighth of our team for that reason? Is it that important? It is definitely important. And um, calling Tony a, a meat sack, I don't think that's what we're talking. That's what we mean. But like, yeah, that warm body. I don't think he's going to be able to contribute as much as he has in the past in those transition stages. But remember. You need those those strong guys not only in the team time trial but in the whole entire race, especially if you if your your leader's in trouble or if you have to set the pace because you're leading the, the overall race. And you know it's just his experience and dependability that I think uh, definitely kind of sways sways the scales in his favor. But he's he's definitely you know not the the Tony Martin that we've seen. In the in the past, but he's still strong enough to to provide that experience and that that strength in the team time trial, which definitely put him over the edge in in getting into that team selection. And tell me about your first tour. How like all those first yeah those first years that you were racing, like you, you you alluded to it before. You know, you were the last guy selected for the '98 tour, and then you went on to finish on the podium. Like. How did you, you know, like, did you start that season thinking you were going to go to the tour? Like, did you have any idea? What was that like? So 1997 was the first year I did the Sorry, tour. 97. And, and I did not 
speaking uh, speak much French at all. And ignorance was bliss. And to tell you the truth, I was just kind of going with the flow. I mean, if it happened, it happened. And it wound up happening. I got selected. But um, I, I was really kind of shell-shocked when, when all of a sudden I'm there in Paris and, or in, in the start of the, I forget where the tour started that year, but it was, it was a crazy feeling. Like everything that you heard is true. Like just the people and the, the pressure and the excitement and the media attention, it was a little bit too much, to be honest. I remember the first 10 days of the tour in 1997, as much as I tried, I could not even get to the front of the Peloton. And I would get stuck behind the, that last crash. I never crashed, but I was always like behind that, that crash that happened like 5K to go or 3K to go. And I was just so frustrated. Like, why can't I get to the front here? And then obviously once we got to the mountains, that changed a little bit. But man, there's nothing like doing your first tour and there's no way that you could prepare for it. There's just so much expectation. And then when you get there, it's, it's everything and more than people say. So being surrounded by experienced guys and experienced senior management really makes a difference there. And, you know, having, having the, the coaches and even a sports psychologist on board during the tour, especially those first few stages, I think are a big benefit. And to link, like, and talking about, you know, today's sort of surprise stage winner in, in Tunisian and also talking about, um, <laughs> uh, and also talking about Tony Martin, um, like Jumbo Visma, an example of a team that are mixed. They have two kind of goals here. They've got Gronewagen, you know, for stage wins and obviously now Tunisian. And then, and then they've got Stefan Kreiswick here to win the overall and, and Van Ert as well to, to potentially do really well. So, you know, like how, like, for example, there's, there's a team like that, right? Which the selection for that team has got to be complicated. And then if we saw today, you know, uh, Astana, right? When Fugosain crashed, the entire team dropped back and, and waited. So they've only got one goal. Can you kind of maybe talk a little bit about like those two con conflicting or those two competing um, programs, right? And, and then the selection process, and the, the pros and cons of that. Yeah, well, with, with Jumba Visma, for example, I think they've weighted their selection a little bit more towards the stages than actually giving Kreuzweig uh, full mountain support, right? I mean, yes, there's Absolutely. there's George Bennett and Lawrence Deplus, but but some of these other guys, um, they they're more there to to help. Groenewegen and Walt Van Aert and and um, who and, and the guy that won today, Mike Tunison. Yep. So yeah, they're they are a very good example of a team that has maybe a two-headed attack plan, but they've definitely weighted it a little bit more towards the the stages, and maybe that's something that they're not quite so one hundred percent confident in Kreuzweich doing. Uh, a podium or going for the win because you have to have a strong team in the mountains, especially the way that this tour is set up this year with those stages at the end. Yeah. That'll be very difficult uh, to be K solo after the first category one climb in that last week compared to a team like Astana with, with Google song, having many more guys weighted towards his strengths, which is going for the GC. And then the, the, the so then there's the, the payoff of that, right? Like we saw, you know, essentially what, like half an inch lower, cut in the face, cuts Fugusang's eye, 
he's out of the race. Their whole team's essentially up the creek without a paddle, right? Like they've all come here to support him and then he disappears. So that's a huge risk, right, for for a team to put all of their eggs in one basket, you know, um, versus versus uh, um, Jumbo Visma, right? So it's just like what, what, what do you reckon the um, – is there, like, say, for example, today, uh, Astana lost Fuglesang. Like, what do they do now? They, they would have to pivot. They'd have to pivot because there's no real GC Grand Tour contender left on their roster. And that's a, a priority or that's, that's, a, that's a special thing that not that many teams have. What happens if, if Richie Port crashes out or gets, has a bad day? It's kind of we the kind same of thing. We kind of saw right? Like with um, with them, them losing their leader, like, you know, just before the start of the race. Um, and then their whole team, you know, like you hit Michael Matthews was in the media, like I'd been training like as a support rider, not as, as someone chasing stages. So they kind of had to to go through that, right? Yeah. There, there's not that many teams that have the depth at that GC tour winning guy. Ineos is is really the only one that has multiple guys at that level. I'd love to see Bahrain with with Rohan Dennis, you know, make a make a step up and and in support of Nibali there. But that's that's a beautiful thing to have those those GC options. Not many teams have that. Exactly. And um, and before we move on, before we go on and talk about tomorrow's stage, Bobby. Looking at the teams here and the start lists, what's your favorite? Like, what do you think is the most balanced team or the most kind of interesting team that that has brought you know the most interesting mix of riders to the race? Well, I would say that EF Education First has a very interesting team selection. Um, they've got a guy that won the Tour of Flanders in there. They've got Rigoberto and TJ Van Garderen coming off one of the best races that he's done in quite a while by getting second in the Dauphiné. They have a very interesting mix and match there. Um, the, their, their so-called warm bodies on the front are also guys that can go uphill. So to me, that's the most interesting team. We know how strong Team Ineos is but, and, and how much experience they have. But as far as just real unique, um, everything has to go right. And if things don't go right, you do have a second option in, in many, many facets there. I'd say EF Education First is is that one real curious selection for me. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I think we'll uh, we'll see um, certainly tomorrow, and then and then over the next week. And um, speaking about, uh, I actually sat down this morning or this afternoon with Mitch Docker of EF Education, who was uh, on EF's long list for the Tour de France and has been for for much of the last year. And he spoke about, you know, not being selected for the tour despite, you know, training for it. Here it is. So I'm sitting down here with Mitch Docker. We're at his place in Girona. Mitch was up for selection for the Tour de France this year um, and was told a week ago that he wasn't going to go. Mitch, can you kind of uh, tell me about that whole process? Like, when does this process start and how intense is it? It's a long process. It starts right back in November when you're talking to your director and he's talking to you about okay let's think about next year's program and for me it starts with that conversation of early season stuff in Australia the classics 
and then the Giro, and I was sort of like, you know what? How about the tour for me next year? I think I threw a bit of a curveball to the director because it was a bit like, oh yeah, right, the tour. You reckon you're up for it? And I was like, all right, I am. I'm up for it, you know. And I, I, I pleaded my case there, and it's like, yeah, I like the sound of that. We'll throw you on the long list. But I realistically think they thought, you know what, we've got a guy for reserve, and I don't know if. I think I had a, I had a, an uphill battle getting in the team, but. Yeah. That was the process. It's a long time ago until sort of whatever it is, November to July. And I didn't really want to get in the game of everything I did for the tour. Everything I did was for the tour. But it sort of is like that. It's a long Tour de France selection. And then fast forward eight months, right? So like, you know, eight months go by and we're now a week out from the Tour de France and you're at a training camp, which is like... You know, it's a team time trial training camp, but you still don't know who's going to make the team. And there's nine guys there, or no, there's 11 guys at that camp. So there's too many guys to go to the mm. race. What, like, in between, you know, that initial conversation, putting your best foot forward and there, are you just like, forget, you know, like no one talks about it or are they constantly checking on you? Or what's like, they sort of like, ooh, that was a, you know, that's a, that might have hurt you. Well, the thing yeah. is, I think there's a few guys who are sort of guaranteed their spot, the big guys, you know, the guys we're working towards. You know, in our team, Rigoberto Oran, TJ Van Garda and Mike Woods, I think they sort of say to them, just be at your best shape in July. Without a crash, without injury, your spot, we're riding for you. We need you in the best shape. Whereas the rest of us are sort of like, you don't want to get that cross next to your name. So the whole sort of season, you're... Making sure, and that was my that was my approach. I knew I was never going to get the tick early on. I knew it was going to go right to the line for me. But my theory was, as long as I don't get the line drawn through my name, some bad performances, I just have to be always good, consistent. And if it comes to it, they know they've got a consistent guy. So then to fast forward to the final training camp, I knew I still didn't have that line through my name, well, so I thought. And I was just sort of hoping that, you know, some others might fall away or whatever, and then the spot would be mine. Um, but, yeah, we went to the team's time trial camp, and I'd worked a lot on my time trialling, so I was feeling quite confident there. And I think I, I, think I still put in a really good, um, a good ride there. Not that it's like a race, but you're just trying to do your best and just show that you're, in my case, show that you're really valuable for the team. There's no point going there and ripping everyone's legs off because, yeah, you show you're the strongest dude there, yeah. which I could have easily done. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> but, but it also shows that you're a complete fuckwit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you just, it's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. You're sort of trying to show your best and you're like, oh, did you see that awesome team, team turn I did? <laughs> you know? See that 500-metre pull? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you just like... Um, yeah, just, yeah, you're just trying to balance it, right? Yeah, trying to balance it. And then, like, when it came to it, like, I think that the team was selected um, sort of a, maybe a week or so out, and I guess I was just making sure no one was really off in that final camp or, you know, not sick or injured or there was a crash or something like that, and then, you know, I was ready to go still. So. Yeah. And so you, which is brutal... Like, because, we, I mean, you're essentially your best, in your best condition right now and you're, there's no racing now. No. 
So how's that? Like, what's that do to you mentally? You know what I mean? Like, that's got to be... I don't know. I mean, you, you've been yeah. doing this for a while, so it's I probably... Think, like, I think mentally I'm okay yeah. because it was sort of a a win-win situation for me. We've just, we've just had a daughter yeah. and my wife was here with my son as well and I knew it was going to be hard for me to walk away from that but the opportunity of the tour would have been great too. So I was sort of like, you know what, if the team needs me and there's that position, I'm up for it. But also yeah. if I didn't get selected, I knew that I'd be needed back at home to spend time with the family in summer. Um, the form side of things, that's probably a bit harder to take because I did do quite a lot of preparation and do some of those rides where you're out there hating life and going, this is for the tour, you know? And you've only got so many of those matches left to do. Um, and I went out and did a ride this week because I still kept training right up to the day to make sure, just in case there was something that I was ready to go. And um, just pumped out this, this like, 20-minute effort and I was like, ah. Oh. I just started 400, 400 watts and I was like, ah. Oh. Take it to 410. I'm like, what the hell? What the hell are these legs? You know? And it was just funny. I was like, well, these are the legs that would have been in the tour. And that was sort of the sad moment. Because yeah. I was like, fuck, I'm in good form. And I smashed up this climb on my own. Who gives a shit? Yeah, no, no one there would watch it. Nah. So, you know, in the Strava Hunter sort of things, it would have been cool. But yeah. um, I guess, yeah, I guess the next thing for me is the Vuelta. Yeah. And it was like... Am I ready to do that whole preparation again? Like I said to you, those mental matches. But it's so funny, like, already a week after it, I'm like, oh, yeah, well done, let's go. But, like, last week, I was like, no way. Yeah. But then already you're, you're ready to go. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thank you. No worries. Thanks for your time. Mitch Docker, uh, sitting on the sidelines watching this one, but we'll be back, we'll be back for the tour. <laughs> you'll be hearing back for the well time, and you'll be hearing more from him. Thanks, Sweet. man. No worries. And there it is from the horse's mouth, a uh, first-hand anecdote of not making the Tour de France in 2019. Mitch Docker, not on the beach, on his balcony, just down the street from me in Girona, but no doubt we'll be on the beach next week. Thanks, Mitch. Let's move on. Let's talk about tomorrow's stage. 27.6-kilometre TTT. Bobby, talk me through it. Well, it's a team time trial, second day of the Tour. There's a couple guys that are licking their wounds already. It's a stage that all these teams have trained for. They're all ready for. But what happens on race day, you just cannot predict. Team time trial is not about being the strong, having one or two strong guys. It's having eight equally strong guys. And throwing the ego out the window and just working as a unit. There's a lot of team time trials that I've been on in the past where it always seemed like there was one guy, especially at the beginning of the race, that was trying to prove how strong he was, and he'd either blow the team apart or fade in the second half and basically be dropped. So there's, there's a lot of tactics that go into this, but, man, at this level, these guys have trained this so well. But the mentality on race day, that calmness on race day, is so hard to really pin down. Um, a lot of it is just kind of trying to put out all those distractions and focus on the simple fact that, guys, this is basically riding in, a, in an echelon. We do this every single day in training or training camps or races. But it just seems like when, when all the marbles are on the line that it gets to somebody. And that's where the team time trial is not just the, the physical strength, but it's that mental calmness and, and hopefully relaxation 
and confidence that you have in your teammates that, that gets you through and gets you through to, to a win at this level. And that's totally it, right? Like, um, it seems like it's just an all out free for all, you know, Friday morning bunch ride swap off. Right. But it's not, it's not the Wednesday worlds. It's, 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 there's so much of a mental game to it. It's, it's about being empathetic and it's about, um, sticking to a plan and trusting a plan. So I love the TTT. I mean, it's boring as hell to watch, but I like the, uh, I like the, I like the, uh, theory that goes into it. Bobby, who's going to win? Okay. I'm going with team Ineos. And I say that because they have also put together a very interesting team. And that was right. I was going to say them, but I went with, with EF. I think they have a little bit more experience. I know that they are down to the absolute last detail when it comes to this sort of preparation. And they have the motivation to, to do so, being defending champion. The only problem is tomorrow they're starting first because they had nobody even close to that sprint today because they must have all gotten caught behind that crash. So that could be a, an advantage. Like, hey, listen, we're just going to go as hard as we can and like let the cards fall where they may behind us. But to me, I always wanted to be the last game starting or at least towards the end around the main favorites so that you could get kind of an idea through those time checks of what, what we really needed to do. And, you know, those time checks are, are, are pretty interesting because there's nothing that you could really change because you're going as hard as you can as a group anyway. But there's that confirmation that if you're on point, all of a sudden it just gets a little bit easier mentally. But when you come through the time check and you see that you're already down, man, you just got to, you just got to keep going and just hope for the best because there's not that much you can change. And tomorrow they actually have two intermediate time checks. So team Ineos will be the only team that has no kind of uh, benchmark of if they're going fast or not. And that's it, right? Like these things come down to, to percentage points, whether it's a win or lose. And over the course of the Tour de France, it's down to, you know, tenths of a percentage point. I would rather be chasing the carrot than have the carrot chase me, right? It's always better to have that incentive in front of you. And with that, I guess tomorrow we will see. Uh, that's the show. Thank you very much for tuning in. I'd like everybody to subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud. Uh, head over to at Velo News Voices. Follow us on Twitter. Don't forget, guys, put your socks on. Bobby? For a very limited time, if you use coupon code TDF at RoadID.com, you'll score $5 off one piece of gear no cyclist should ride without. Again, that coupon code is TDF. And in case you were wondering, Road IDs range in price from a mere $20 to $35. So not only are they inexpensive, but they look good, last forever, and just might save your life. So stop procrastinating and go get one of these things today.